This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where the great and the good and the simply fascinating get taken for a first-class lunch, whilst we record the chat with their full knowledge, of course. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting at either ends of the table from the Labour MP for Tottenham for the last 20 years. In that time, he's also served under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and is now Shadow Lord Chancellor and Shadow Secretary of State for Justice under Keir Starmer. A prominent campaigner for justice, his impassioned speeches for the Windrush generation and Grenfell, amongst others, have put him at the very forefront of British politics. It's the Right Honourable David Lammy MP. So I, I, I shouldn't really, you know, congratulate myself on getting David Lammy to cry because you do it all the time. No, I, I don't do it all the time. I try desperately not to do it all the time. But, but there are things that just evoke it. For this episode of Out to Lunch, I have come to a branch of Roka. It's a rather snazzy Japanese restaurant in London. There are actually a bunch of them across the city, and I think there's one in Dubai as well. This one is on Charlotte Street. I believe it's the original Roka. Rather shiny, rather fashionable Japanese restaurant. And I think it will suit David Lammy very well because he has certain dietary requirements, which we'll get into in the interview. Join us as we go and eat Japanese food at Roka on Charlotte Street. Let's get inside. David. Hi, we can't shake hands. We can't shake hands. We've got a long, Hello. socially distanced table. Great. Um, this is very posh. Isn't it? I've not been here. I just haven't been in this neighbourhood. It's a very nice neighbourhood for a very long time. Well, welcome to this neighbourhood. It's nice to see you. Um, thank you for agreeing to come and have lunch with me. Thank you. In, in this slightly formal situation with, with a couple of microphones. I'm afraid because I'm crap about knowing these things. Yeah. But I've got a feeling this is quite a well-known, trendy Oh, you're an incredibly yeah. famous place, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. You've described your childhood as not necessarily one of grinding poverty, but of not much. You got a choral scholarship to a, a school in, in Peterborough. You go to SOAS, you were the first Black Briton to go to Harvard Law School, you then worked as a lawyer on the West Coast. It's often quoted that you got to know Barack Obama. How did that happen? Well, um, it was after I left Harvard and came back to the UK. We've been friends for 15 years or more. So it predates him being president? It predates him being president. And basically, I was a young MP and a young member of parliament. Barack and someone who became the, the, the um, governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick kind of made a beeline for me because the 
The Democrats were out of power. They were young black guys. Uh, George Bush was in power and was riding high. Here I was in London, um, uh, part of the Tony Blair crowd. But we became friends through the Harvard Black Alumni, which I've got to tell you is one of the most powerful uh, secret societies or not so secret societies that I'm a part of. Um, Let's be clear on that. But it was more when I went to Washington or New York or Boston, I would, you know, drop in and see them and and when they came to London they would drop in and see me and we just sort of trade stories and that friendship has continued and I guess because part of that is trust and I guess whilst he was president the friendship continued but I never ever dined out on it or particularly traded on it and obviously I'm incredibly proud of him and he's incredibly helpful to me. I, I don't want to intrude on that on that trust, but I'm just curious as to whether you've had any conversations with him over the recent times about the situation with Trump and the the election and his deputy now being the candidate. I actually spent some time with him in March, just before the lockdown came down. Uh, so uh, Joe Biden had not become the candidate at that point, but coronavirus was looming. You know, we talked for a good two or three hours about where the world was. Um, I've been massively struck. Private, sadly. Does it? <laughs> I've been massively struck by his restraint throughout the Trump presidency. He's actually an incredibly disciplined kind of person. In that sense, I don't know quite how he does it. Can I introduce you to Ma- uh, Madalena, who's our? Hello, Madalena. Hello, nice Hello. I'm sorry Madalena. I can't shake your hand. No I know that you do low carbing, or I, I, well, I'm, I'm meant to be on a keto. Sort of, you know. Explain what a keto diet is to anybody who doesn't know. Really, no sugar and no carbs. The bit that's hard is that is the no sugar. It's because it's everywhere. It's prolific, and actually, what it really means is quite a lot of alcohol that you can't have. No. And that's actually quite hard. <laughs> have you found your way to the skinny uh, bitch yet? Sorry, to what? Do you know what a skinny bitch is? Uh, I, I know uh, you'll feel probably mildly uncomfortable with that term, but it I is the name of it. That and, it podcast. and it was given to me by, by Stephen Fry. It's gin and slimline tonic. Yeah, OK, I have found my way. <laughs> I've, I've all, absolutely found my way to gin. And it's and, called and, that yeah. because apparently it is the alcoholic drink of choice of supermodels the world over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did plot a course through this. Sounds fantastic. Would you let me go for it? Please, go for it. All right. So, Madalena, here's what I'm going to suggest. If we start off with um, one of the trio sashimi, the three sashimi, and one of the yellowtail sashimi. With truffle oil, right? I think so. Yeah. It'd be rude not to. That's from the Roka signature list. Then the lamb cutlets. You're okay with lamb? Mm. Yeah, good. I'm so glad you said that with the Korean spice. (laughs) It's the first thing I saw. And the salmon... Teriyaki. And then the tender stem broccoli, oh right. the mushrooms and the fried aubergine. Oh, fried aubergine. mushroom with truffle or without David. Oh, well, it sounds posh and fancy and it's certainly something that I wouldn't have with truffle normally, so it sounds like yes. Okay. Yes, OK. truffle and the last dish? Was the aubergine, the eggplant. The eggplant. OK. Literally today there was news overnight from America that Trump's tax returns had been found by the New York Times. We're at a particular time in the Brexit negotiations, which looks exceedingly messy. We're looking at coronavirus numbers going through the roof all over the place. David, how shit are things at the moment? (laughs) They're pretty shit. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, God, they're pretty bad. I mean, I think that it feels to me that there's a sort of crisis in the Anglo-American world. It's a crisis that's clearly in part being stoked by traditional enemies like Vladimir Putin, particularly on social media, where there's a ramping up of the divides in society. There are people who should know considerably better, particularly, it seems to me, on the right of the political spectrum that have gone down the road of populism for their own benefit. There are some really tough challenges for Western democracies. Ageing population presents real challenges uh, in terms of social equity. You know, an era where technology is taking away a lot of those jobs presents real challenges and deep inequalities presents real challenges. These are real serious, tough things, no doubt about that. But the way to kind of attend to them, it seems to me, is to be serious and straight. And there are fantastic politicians like Angela Merkel, and she's not actually in my sort of political tradition, but nevertheless is going about tackling those serious problems. And then there are others who want to blame it on Iqbal that moved him down the street or the European Union or the Mexicans or the African... Anything, anything but the real challenge. And and that's kind of where we are. So there's a sort of unholy collide of things that leads to this place that feels atomized, tribal, desperate, and so utterly salacious and venal and the lowest common do not just dirty down and dirty my colleagues and i you know i'm, I'm known as a restaurant critic but i've written about many many other things and been involved in many things we, we we've had conversations going god if only it could be more boring it's it, it's horribly interesting at the moment <laughs> everything that's going on hang on i'm going to stop you because let madalena deliver some dishes that's very pretty oh my god that's pretty that's just beautiful it's gorgeous you, I'm not going to go through every detail of this story because it's well rehearsed. You can find it on other podcasts. Read, uh, just read my book. Yes, or oh, you can read your book. No, that's actually <laughs> true. Tribes. It's, it's very clear. The, the first part tells your story. Go for it. Um, very clearly. You go to SOAS. You go to Harvard. You're one of the first, if not the first, black British student at Harvard Law School. You do eventually end up working in the States. You have done the thing. You've run. Why'd you come back? I missed home, massively. I actually say in my, in my book, in a chapter about loneliness, it took me going to California after Harvard Law School and sitting in a Californian law firm. And at the time, there was a show on TV called L.A. Law, which was really we all remember cool. Law. And there was a black guy in it, and I wanted to be him, Blair Underwood. And there I am, living the dream and earning quite a lot of money for a young lawyer. And actually, I miss Ribena. I miss Walker's Crifts. I miss tea. I miss the sense of humour, which I didn't think the Californians had. Where were you in California? Uh, I was in Northern California. I was working in the Embarcadero Centre in San Francisco. And at the time, Tony Blair had come to power in, in, in the UK. Something was happening in the UK, you know, whether it was superficial things like the Spice Girls or... That was a very or, important moment in all our lives, or, or, David. You know, or sort of deeper things like the death of Princess Diana. Actually, it marked a change that I wanted to be part of. And I realised in the end that money and profit, because I was in a commercial law firm, and somehow being an American 
was not in the end what I wanted to do. But was there also, I want to go back and make a difference? There was always, I want to make a difference. I could only make a difference, really, in the UK, or try to make a difference in the UK. I didn't know where that was. I've got to tell you, when I came back to the UK, I came back as a lawyer. I didn't know... What, What year did you come back? Uh, so I came back in 99. The speed with which you went from coming back to being an MP, it was pretty quick, wasn't it? It was mm. two years? It was quite quick. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, there are times when you look back in your life and you can't quite reconcile the person you were then with the person you are now. But clearly, it is also the case that leaving the UK going to Harvard Law School and living in America on my own, I ended that period in my life with tremendous confidence. Confidence that I think would not be usually associated with someone from my background. I I was, I, I ended up in a sort of Boris Johnson public school Were you a master of the universe? I was like, wow, I can take on the world. I can do anything. And that confidence propelled me to stuff I didn't even understand. By the way, it didn't last, but that's another story. (laughs) I decided that I would try and become, get onto the London Assembly. You know, Ken Livingstone was coming back as the new mayor of London and that was my best breakthrough. But then, very sadly, Bernie Grant died. He was the MP for Tottenham. And I was, in the, I guess, in the right place at the right time. Uh, we have some more food arriving. Maitake mushroom, truffle. It's absolutely Fried amazing. Fried salad, which yeah. is some I'm, dressing. I'm not, not going to let flakes. these two bits. Yeah, you, t- you clear that plate so it, oh, God, it goes. It's way too nice for that. Thank you so Thank much. You. Enjoy, gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> Labour under Blair and Alistair Campbell, who I know you're, you're still friends with, were very good at identifying things that moved the whole project forward. Was there a concern at that? I'm going, right, we don't have enough black people in the Labour Party and David is everything we need. The truth is, yeah, of course I've been pigeonholed because there aren't many people like me and actually part of that journey from becoming to become, because I now feel like I've become, is kind of not caring so much about the labels people are applying to yourself because you the confidence that I've arrived at now as I approach 50 is a confidence to do with being my parents being no longer alive being a father being a husband and being comfortable with who I am and in my own skin so you mentioned your book so it's called tribes and it starts off with you describing getting a DNA test and discovering that you are a significant amount of a tribe in Africa, Tuareg. And from Niger. I've been asked to take this DNA test by the Science Museum. I was culture minister at the time. It was back in 2007. Um, Tony Blair had asked me to be culture secretary and help the country prepare for the commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade. It was great. I had a fantastic time. In that period also, I'd got married to my wonderful wife, Nicola Green, who's an artist. So we had a great time while I was culture secretary. So I took this DNA test and the results came back a few weeks later and I described that in the book. And the truth is, if you are the descendant of enslaved people, there's a piece of you that you know started something else, somewhere else, had a language, a culture, a religion that was stripped and taken away from you, 
you know, where are my ancestors from was a big deal, not just for me, but for my extended family. And it came back and... There was a whole load of stuff in there. Yeah. In short, on my father's side, uh, we were Bantu South African, which was surprising because most of the slaves came from West Africa. On my mother's side, uh, Sierra Leonean, and then Tuaregs from Niger. And I had never heard of Niger, really. I'd certainly never heard of um, Tuareg people, nomadic people that stretched from North Africa down through Mali, Mauritania, Niger. And I had to get back there, go back there. I, I write about it in the no, book. And spend time in that country. And of course, you know, I found myself looking at the barber, at the driver, at everybody. And I felt that these are me. I can see me in them. But I don't know if that was just me wanting to be connected. But they were terribly kind and generous and Muslim. (laughs) So there was something also, often I was in very all-male settings, you know, praying and being... Uh, Muslim alongside them and there was something, it was a bit like sort of Malcolm X I felt very empowered by that I should say though, for those listening that I was also uh, 5% Scott (laughs) (laughs) But we know where that's from, don't we? (laughs) That's someone getting their leg over Yeah, that's someone getting their leg over over on the you know on the slave plantation. Oh. <laughs> I um, suspect so. It's got to be. So just cut it, cutting aside, did you at some point say to Gordon Brown's team? I did joke at a certain point that I was Scott, but it slightly, I think, went over Gordon's head. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role-play, uh-huh. like, um... Like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't. Pass. And I said, I said, um, they no. wanted. They first said, da- like dad, daddy, oh, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe like I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the things that comes across from the book, you are clear that tribes are an important part of who we all are. So, and that being, being tribal can be great, but being tribal can also be absolutely awful. So it turns out that there are definitely aspects of tribalism, if you like, that are innate, i.e., you know, as Homo sapiens, we start off in small groups. We are suspicious of the group beyond the valley or beyond the mountain but we learn to come together because actually we can hunt more gather more plant more together but we still have to be weary of those with different cultures and different traditions we take a slight curveball that's still with us when we decide that one group of people who are 
black or brown are innately different to another group of people who are white. And that's a story that's sadly still with us. But we also know that because we have to pull together at the point at which we discovered the idea of the nation state, and actually as nations, we can hang together, that's actually quite meaningful for us. And so at that point, you've got two options. You can be an ethno-state and define your existence as ethnic, i.e. people who were born of this, of this mm. soil and this land. And clearly, uh, at this time, there are people ramping that up, like Nigel Farage in our own country, uh, like Donald Trump in his. Or you can have an idea of civic patriotism, nationalism. That means that anyone arriving in that place can make this their home. There are a set of rules that you've got to go go alongside. And also, I suppose, recognises that we actually are all related to each other. We all come out of Africa. We all move around. That's the tradition. That's that's what I mine in this book. How are you finding the aubergine? Fantastic. Being a Jewish... And uh, uh, nobody will be surprised here. I, I, I am a Labour voter, although I didn't for two or three elections for reasons which I think you'll find absolutely <laughs> obvious. Um, has been very complicated because that really has been about identity. I, I've never defined myself as a Zionist. I, I've been to Israel a couple of times, didn't like it. Um, not, not keen on a desert, but you know, I understand the the insta- the, uh, the motivations behind the foundation yes. of the state of Israel. I do not approve of the way they've treated the Palestinians. Yes, got that all on tape. Yeah. <laughs> but it made me, it forced me in many ways to think about what that identity was. Uh, you were one of those who nominated Corbyn, and I understood why there was this kind of we must have a broad ballot. Did you come to actively regret that? Yes. Well, that's simple. Um. (laughs) Yes, it is important for me to explain that. There are a couple of things going on. Jeremy is beloved in North Islington. He is a fantastic constituency MP. I had known him for many years. We'd worked wonderfully together across boundaries. I hadn't particularly engaged terribly in his politics on the left, either his foreign policy particularly, and at the same time... The Labour Party had run into the sand. There was a suggestion that the ballot could be just the same old kind of people, basically former researchers who'd been to Oxbridge. And there was a part of me for whom that grated, for obvious reasons. I wanted to shake it up. And so I had this call to to nominate him. Please, will you nominate him? And he had just kicked off my campaign in the general election in 2015, in Tottenham because in a seat like Tottenham you never get big figures to come and start your election campaign because the likelihood is you're going to win it so I just asked Jeremy to come up and he came up on his bike on Tottenham you know came up Tottenham High Road and he kicked off my campaign so I sort of felt I owed him (laughs) (laughs) and that's the end of the story Uh, uh, now should I have been more engaged in his foreign policy tradition should I have been more questioning of where this would take the party yes I should and have I learnt a lot and has it depressed me and saddened me and was it a very low moment and let me the other side of me is I, I am very loyal and that presents conflict so did you ever have it out, out with him face to face no he's not that kind of guy the I mean, accountant it's very clear he hates any kind he of conflict hates conflict you'd never it doesn't doesn't provoke that there was two things that started to happen one the party took a direction on Brexit that I found deeply problematic and there was a point at which I literally after the after the first referendum was the only Labour politician 
that took a certain position. At the time, I could sniff in the victory uh, walk of Nigel Farage a lot of the energy that that was just so deeply xenophobic. I felt I had to resist it on behalf of the people that I represented. But the other thing that happened, of course, was the horrible anti-Semitism that grew under his leadership. And that's where loyalty really kicked in because the story that's important to understand, and it makes me terribly emotional. I mean, my eyes are welling up as I talk to you. It just suddenly, um, uh, you know, uh, comes through me is what 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 had not been said is that I simply would not have gone to Harvard Law School were it not for the Jewish community were it not for um, Jewish lawyers getting alongside me and <laughs> so got did you feel you were betraying them um, then the, the party you no, were part I, of no was... I felt well I wasn't prepared to betray that community um, because it had been so good to me and because. I felt very close. It generally does make you emotional, doesn't um, it? Well, I do, because I'm a sentimental kind of guy. <laughs> and that, I mean, of course, that's notwithstanding all the problems in relation to foreign policy in Israel. But it is to say that in the end, you know, I do believe in this business of allies and a degree of loyalty. And there's a long tradition of both Jewish and black communities standing together. You see it in South Africa with Mandela and the lawyers that supported him. You see it with Martin Luther King uh, and the birth of the NAACP in the United States. And that's kind of the tradition that I'm speaking about. What it did mean is, eventually, is that you were not on the Labour front bench during those years. Uh, You were on your own front bench. (laughs) It was great! Um, actually, that, that, well, I'll come back to you. You, you, you had your own <laughs> My platform, mojo and you wonderful. were angry. Angry? Uh, you, you uh, things happened I during that period. Say, no, no, no. Well, I was going to say a virtuous anger, um, a, a proper anger. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you, you talked about keeping people in their box, and the immediate thought that came into my head was Grenfell was literally that. And I know that was very personal because a, a close friend and. Uh, Someone that your your wife was mentoring died at Grenfell. Um, you made astonishing speeches from the from from your seat in the house, uh, and then when Windrush happened, you I, you did say at one point you were originally going to start by talking about your parents arriving and didn't because you thought you would cry. Um, just but, as I did that. Just did that. <laughs> um, all right, so I, I I shouldn't really you know congratulate myself on getting David Larry to cry because you do it all the time. No, I, I, <laughs> do it all the time. I try desperately not to do it all the time. But but there are things that just evoke it, yeah. Have you become, all right, if you don't like the word angry, have you become crosser? Jay, and please, because I like you a lot, (laughs) Um, but I am going to be a little bit challenging. Go on. Why object to the word anger is uh, because... There are stereotypes about black men that oh. we are that we are angry, that we are predatory sexually, that we are violent. Um, I've sat with so many young black men who have found themselves in trouble because of their passion. I can be visiting a prison and 
you know, they say to me, we were just playing dominoes, the guards suddenly think that we're about to cause a riot and we're suddenly segregated, or you hear this story in school. So there's a there's a bit of me, my back stands up when I hear anger, because the, I suppose the way I would put it is my articulacy on behalf of the Windrush. Yeah. These were people imprisoned, uh, and again, I'm going to get emotional, detained, denied health care, the passion that I demonstrated on behalf of the, my, my folk of me, it's concerning that we live in a country where a significant amount of politicians don't seem to get passionate about that. This young, beautiful woman, Khadija Say, and 71 others burnt to death in a preventable fire. The reason I, I got emotional talking about her was because I, I knew this truth, and this truth is this, and anybody listening who's working class, and this isn't about race, it's about class, you, you know that feeling when someone in a suit or someone in a uniform tells you what to do and you do it. And Khadija and those folk in that, in that building were told to stay put. And had Khadija had just a bit more agency should have run out of that building the first minute she smelled smoke and she'd still be alive today. And it was when I recounted that story that I got emotional because I know how that feels. I grew up in that. I know exactly what that means, being trusting in the state and then the state letting you down in such a way that you die. Yeah. So, so I would say there's something about our system that drives the empathy, compassion and the language out of these terrible situations. And here I am, the minority, speaking my truth. But believe me, it's on behalf of a lot of people that stand who haven't got the platform I've got. And the thing I decided in my career was that I would use this platform, this amphitheatre that is the House of Commons, to speak up for those cleaners, those porters, those barbers, the, the people in my constituency who would give, they give so much just to have half an hour to convey how they feel about what's going on in our country. We have a new leader of the Labour Party. You're on the front bench now. Given both roles, aren't you both Shadow Lord Chancellor and Shadow Attorney General? No, no, I'm... I'm <laughs> It's a bit of a mouthful, but you're right. There are two. I'm, I'm, I'm Shadow Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor. Oh, right. OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you are right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly startled to discover that <laughs> were there not enough lawyers knocking around in the current Labour Party to split those to split those. There's a lot of lawyers back in the Labour Party, that's for sure. Starmer, we're, we're just a few days after he made his first, obviously, virtual conference speech. And there was a lot of commentary about it actually appealing to... Patriotism. What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, it's again, great. I'm, I, I, I understand where he was coming from. But is patriotism great? Does not patriotism is not patriotism the? We've got to make a distinction between being patriots and being um, nationalists. One, we've also got to make a distinction between loving your country but wanting to make it better and somehow disparaging your country and not loving your country. And this is the dilemma that we find in England. And I write about that. I, and, and Keir was absolutely 100% right. He's a, he's a guy that grew up on the Kent-Surrey borders, the Garden of England, 
Um, I have to say, he loves football. If you ever get him chatting... Um, That's not a conversation uh, I'm ever uh, likely uh, to have well, with him. But okay, you might not, but I've had a few. Um, uh, you know, he loves the game. Um, but yes, as a progressive politician, he's got a vision of things to build on in this country, like the NHS, the BBC. Oh, lamb um, chops are coming, David. There we go. Put them down that end. Fancy lamb cutlet with cucumber and sesame dressing. Thank you. Broccoli with moromi miso. Salmon teriyaki fillet. Brilliant. Is it a blessed relief to have a change of the guard and a whole... Look, Keir is bringing a professionalism uh, that I think is great, and I say that in a really, really sort of simple way. I, it's like children who perhaps grow up in a completely liberal, uh, anything-goes environment, and it turns out that actually they just like a, f- a few boundaries, <laughs> a few rules, um, which I think is a great thing and we all respond to. Here's an example of a fantastic boss. Yeah. And I hope, I hope he doesn't mind me doing this. It's... 8.01 on Saturday, the 26th of September. So Saturday just gone as we're sitting Saturday here. Saturday just gone. And he texts me and he says, good luck on Mar tomorrow. You will be brilliant as ever, Kia. Um, I'm getting emotional again. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all had bosses who couldn't give a flying monkey, if you see what I mean. So that's quite sweet to me. And, and that's the kind of guy Just, just to make it clear, this was ahead of your appearance on the Andrew Marshall. On, that's right. That's and it went right. pretty well, it went didn't it? went quite well, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's the fact that he even bothers. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot to worry about. <laughs> and he's sort of, you know... He's got a lot going on, yeah. Thinking about his team, and that's what we need. Yeah. Now you're part of Labour's front bench. Yeah. Do you feel... <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm going to ask. Do you feel somewhat constrained from the liberation of the passionate David Lammy with his oh, front God. bench on the back bench? Um, there is more constraints. Of course, there are more constraints because you're in a leadership position and um, and you're subject to collective responsibility, i.e. the model is have your rows in private, not in public. Um, so that there are more constraints, of course, and that is definitely the case. I hope that there's not a parking of my, what's described as my passion, which I think comes actually from trying my hardest to be an authentic kind of politician and being rooted somewhere and I'm not going to pass that up well because my wife's an artist and and, and her art is based largely in portraiture uh, she's a real observer of people and she has observed and showed me how over the years if you watch certain politicians and I'm sure your listeners can think of them they start their careers looking down the camera and their face are all straight and they end their careers and literally their mouths have moved to the side of their face and they are speaking out of them, literally. You can tell that somehow what they're saying and what they believe are no longer aligned and I do not want to end up in that place. But yes, there are more constraints with the front bench. What I'm really enjoying is actually being in a leadership position. I'm enjoying... Uh, the justice brief because I feel like I know a lot about it um, uh, and it comes to me naturally I spent years and years and years within it and I enjoy being amongst the leadership uh, obviously alongside Keir and other members of the shadow team of the Labour Party and I'm at a stage in my life where I, you know, that feels feels good 
What's the gossip around the Commons? No names, but I'm just... If you talk to other Tory MPs, I'm sure some of them are your mates, or at least for you to have those conversations. Is there really despair within the parliamentary Tory party? They're saying all the things that everybody else is saying, not on the detail, not enjoying it. Boris is someone who innately wants to make you laugh. And therefore wants to be liked. We've all got friends like that. Wants to be liked, wants to make you laugh. Um, Is empowered because audaciously he can make people laugh, even people who shouldn't be laughing at him. And I'm afraid we suddenly hit incredibly serious times in which it's a bit like the emperor has no clothes and people are suddenly seeing that because that stick that he's had of making people laugh isn't working and how could it possibly work when so many people are losing their lives and there's a degree of consistency and self-discipline of the kind I talked about when I mentioned Barack Obama that's required in this moment that that the public are calling out for. One of the interesting things, I think, about everything we've been through in the past four or five years, and this is about tribes, is how you suddenly realise that people you didn't think were in your tribe are. (laughs) There was a lot of discussion about during the run-up to the Brexit referendum, in fact, afterwards, that Remainers in both Mm. Labour and the Tories suddenly realised they had so much more in common. And Mm. the point at which I looked at John Major, who for me is, you know, in 92 was, I use the word schmuck very carefully, I thought, Christ, how did he become Prime Minister? And now I look at him as a a proper statesman. I remember we- speaking to Kenneth Clark shortly after... Kenneth the Clark's a perfect example. ...first re- referendum. Um, I'm forging a friendship with him and getting, getting, becoming friendly with Anna Subri, uh, Caroline Lucas, great people. Um, yeah, it was definitely a parliament in which the boundaries sort of shifted. Now, maybe they've gone back to some extent. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. I haven't got a crystal ball. We'll but, see how it But that's it just one of the points, and it goes back to your book, that tribes are not permanent. The boundaries do shift. Where you see yourself changes according to the times in which you live. Yeah, we're living in extreme times, acceleratedly extreme times, In 2015, David Cameron was reaching out and saying, David, can you do this review for me on the criminal justice system? You did the the Lammy review into criminal justice system. David Cameron, big temp politician. David, can you do this for me? Sure. I don't think anyone could imagine Boris Johnson reaching out and asking me to wipe his shoes, let alone do a review for him. And I kind of go back to what I said before. It's that business of... This calls for a time when you really do need to know where you stand in the ground because the the, the sands are shifting and you don't want to get caught up. And Jay, you know, as I say this, you understand what I'm saying. You don't want to get, you do not want to be that sucker, that caught, caught up in something that turned out to be really rather awful. And history remembers it awfully and you said nothing you did nothing you went along with it and you know I'm looking in your eyes and I can see deeply that you know exactly what I'm saying and that calls for getting beyond the tribe to talk to serious values and they're they're values of uh, what we have to share as human beings what I'm also actually thinking is that that's such a brilliant end line (laughs) Also knowing that you're on a keto diet, there's no point offering you dessert. <laughs> well done. 
So I'm just going to say, David Lammy, thank you for coming out to lunch with me. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Even though we have a very long table, it's sort <laughs> of do. properly socially distanced. Socially distanced. Um, do you always vibrate slightly? You're, you're, oh, I, I, look, the more excited I am, <laughs> the more, I, I shake my legs up and down, I'm afraid. The more... Oh, no, know, don't be afraid. It's just clearly I've, I've had a good lunch, so, so I am bouncing around a bit at the end of the table. With a well, sort of I, I am ADHD delighted to be type. the source, or, or at least to have been the facilitator of a good lunch that had you bouncing around a bit. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. As ever, lunch doesn't seem quite long enough to cover everything we had to say to each other, but we just about squeezed it all in, and we did all right on the food front too. We went full Japanese at Roka in London's fashionable NoHo district, which means it's on Charlotte Street, just north of London's Oxford Street. And if you'd like to squeeze some more wonderful conversation into your day, look no further than our previous episodes of Out to Lunch. There are so many to choose from. And if you have a favourite episode, why not share it with someone who might enjoy it too? And feel free to comment or rate us perhaps, I don't know, five stars? It all helps to spread the love. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Reem, and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be hanging out with journalist, broadcaster and author, it's Dolly Alderton. She had a household where her mum was talked to her about masturbation and was very like, you know, it's this amazing thing, it's a great relationship you can have with yourself and you will have it forever. And she said it actually ruined wanking for her. She was like, every time she went to do it, she was just thinking, oh, mum would be proud. <laughs>